Hello and welcome to another lockdown edition of Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast. With me, Simon Walters, Assistant Editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Platel, Daily Mail columnist in my house in North London. Coming up, Boris Johnson says Britain will build, build, build its way out of the COVID economic meltdown. But by ordering socialist-style state intervention, isn't he acting more like Lenin than Johnson? Whoever thought a conservative leader would feel the need to say this? I am not a communist. I believe it is also the job of government to create the conditions for free market enterprise. We talked to two commentators with close connections to Boris. One thinks his speech was a brilliant way of stealing Labour's clothes. The other thinks Boris is the Tory emperor with no clothes at all. We are facing perhaps the biggest economic crisis Britain has faced since the Second World War. But the actual amount of money, the scale of policy promise, just wasn't up to the job, I'm afraid. And meanwhile, a rare flash of anger. Boris's predecessor in number 10 savaged his decision to get rid of Cabinet Secretary Sir Mark Sedwell in a Lenin-style purge of the Mandarins. On Saturday, my right honourable friend said, we must be able to promote those with proven expertise. Why then is the new National Security Advisor a political appointee with no proven expertise in national security? Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify. Or leave us a review and email us at any time at orderorder at mailplus.co.uk. Boris Johnson went to Dudley in the Midlands, one of the so-called red wall of seats he won from Labour in the election, to launch his campaign to relaunch the economy after coronavirus. Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer wasn't impressed. Well, the Prime Minister promised a new deal, but there's not much that's new and it's not much of a deal. We're facing an economic crisis, the biggest we've seen in a generation, and the recovery needs to match that. What's been announced amounts to less than £100 per person, and it's the re-announcement of many manifesto pledges and commitments. So it's not enough. Well, Amanda, it looks like Boris is back on form. He was doing press-ups in his Downing Street study at the weekend, and then he went to Dudley in the Midlands, got behind a, the wheel of a dumper truck, put his high-vis yellow jacket on, something Boris is always very good at. But I thought he did make a very good speech announcing the new economic measures to try and haul the country out, out of the out of the virus and the meltdown. I thought it was a pretty good effort, actually. What did you think? Well, I, I must say, I wasn't very impressed by those press-ups he did at the weekend. Crikey, um, it looks as though he couldn't get up again. I would have liked to have seen that on video. And I loved Keir Starmer's retort, where he said, OK, if you want to make it a press-up competition, I can do 50 on the dispatch box. I thought, Lord alive, what's it descending into? But no, look, he certainly, Boris certainly had some of his drive back. He looks very pale. But, you know, the guy's been really ill, but he had more of his vomph and vim. But, you know, cracky, how many times are we going to hear about a new deal? That's what Tony Blair promised us back mm. in, what was that, 1998? That was to help the workless classes, as they used to be called mm. then. And I, I just felt that apart from some, some wonderful Boris rhetoric, including him encouraging us to take the zap in a land of the armed services, help to help to build the nightingales, to brew them together with the superhuman energy of Captain Tom, let's put it in a bottle. I, I'm just thinking, apart from that, it's all 
old, tired reruns, you know, cut the red tape, build more new houses, um, you know, more money for schools, more money for hospitals. I mean, Simon, how many times have we heard that? Yeah, but I, I, I think we needed to hear that loud and clear from, from the Prime Minister. We, we've had three or four months of lockdown. He hasn't really had a chance to set out an economic plan. And I think this was a pretty impressive reset. I mean, he, he, he became leader and won Brexit and won the election on his leadership skills. And I think he really did show some leadership oomph there. And he sort of tried to model himself on a little bit on Roosevelt. Well, that is a bit far-fetched because Roosevelt... <laughs> Was, was spent maybe a hundred times more than Boris Johnson planning to spend. But nonetheless, I, 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 I think people got the drift of what he means. The venue, Dudley, one of the red wall seats, build, build, build. We've got to get infrastructure, jobs going. But I did think that the particularly interesting part of the speech was where he's clearly conscious of being a conservative prime minister that is spending a vast amount of money and acting in the way that you'd expect a Labour leader to act with state intervention. And that's why I thought that um, that bit we played about, I, I'm not a communist. OK, he said it as kind of tongue in cheek, but nonetheless, there was a serious point there. There's a lot of Conservatives wondering whether Boris Johnson is a Tory at all, spending the kind of money that that, that Jeremy Corbyn would have spent. So I think there was a, there was an attempt to persuade the people in the former Labour heartlands that there'd be help for them, at the same time trying to reassure Conservatives who, who think who are worried about all this spending. Well, he may have appealed to the new Tory voters behind the Red Wall, but Simon, he didn't appeal to me. He said he was going to support, they weren't, we weren't going to tax uh, the entrepreneurs, the wealth makers. He said those people, you know, they're going to get the economy going. When asked in questions afterwards, he would not rule out tax rises. And, you know, if you're a conservative, you don't believe in tax rises. So I, th I thought he was just a bit, uh, I thought he was a bit all over the place. And, you know, he's obviously got an enormous mountain you know it's mountains he has to climb to get this country back into any kind of economic state but i don't know you know i i just get a bit tired of seeing the guy in a high-vis jacket with a stupid um you know builder's hat on pretending to drive a tractor i mean you know he doesn't even drive his own car well i mean he he was in a pretty boosterish mood theresa may his predecessor was not in a boosterish mood she looked like she was in a foul mood in the commons when she really tore the guts out of, out of Michael Gove, who was at the dispatch box, over this, um, the removal of Sir Mark Sedwell, the Cabinet Secretary. I think, for all intents and purposes, he's been fired. The, I think yeah. people in government, Boris and his chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, they regarded Sedwell uh, as a kind of block to Brexit. And uh, Theresa May was particularly angry at him being uh, removed from his other post, which is the uh, running the, the National Security Council, which deals in intelligence matters. And she was livid that they've replaced him in that job with one of Boris's cronies, uh, David Frost, the Brexit negotiator. I served on the National Security Council for nine years, six years as Home Secretary and three as Prime Minister. During that time, I listened to the expert independent advice from national security advisers. On Saturday, my right honourable friend said, we must be able to promote those with proven expertise. Why then is the new national security advisor a political appointee with no proven expertise in national security? Yeah. Well, 
Like the, uh, uh, my right honourable friend, uh, I too uh, 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 want to pay tribute again to Sir Mark, and I appreciate having served in Cabinet when she was Prime Minister, when Sir Mark was Cabinet Secretary, just how much we all owe to him for his distinguished public service. I should also say, I should also say that we have had previous National Security Advisers, all of them excellent, uh, not all of them necessarily people who were steeped in the security world, some of whom were distinguished diplomats in their own right. So David, sorry, David Frost is a distinguished diplomat in his own right, and it is entirely appropriate that the Prime Minister of the day should choose an advisor appropriate to the needs of the hour. Well, I just thought it was a magnificent sight seeing Theresa May shaking her head and frown at Michael Gove in the Commons. I wasn't quite sure why she was so angry about it, other than just maybe feeling that this is Boris not just dismantling her policies, but di- dismantling the sort of the, 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 the civil servants who, who served her loyally. I think one, having worked with Theresa, uh, one of the things that she's a traditionalist uh, and she likes to do things the correct way. And she just clearly did not think it's appropriate um, to sack a very senior civil servant who'd served her well um, and replace him with an, an apparatchik. I mean, that would, that would offend her sense of decency and correctness. But didn't she look fab? That kind of Chanel-style suit and her hair almost Thatcherite, you know, really beautifully done. She's been to the hairdressers. And the way she kept shaking her head and going, no, 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 like this, just brilliant. If only she could have been that good when she was prime minister, she might have still been there. Mm. Well, she certainly perfected that Theresa May death stare, hasn't she? She gave one to Michael <laughs> Gove. He survived. Writer and commentator Andrew Jimson has written a highly acclaimed biography of Boris Johnson. He says Boris's relaunch is a reminder of why he's such a better prime minister than Johnson's old Etonian and Oxford rival David Cameron. And Andrew, what did you make of Boris's speech? There were some great classic Boris lines in there. Was, was this Boris the booster back to his best? Well, I think he was back near to his best. Boris has a capacity to make not very exciting things sound interesting uh, and very, very clearly going for the Labour voters who backed the Tories in December, the left behind, the neglected, the unloved and announcing a lot of things which I think any Labour leader would be quite happy to announce. Mm-hmm. So a lot of public spending. Um, but then d- d- it's slightly preposterous to compare himself to Franklin Roosevelt. Who I think one of the economists pointed out that he spent something like 40% of America's GDP on getting America out of the Great Depression. And Boris is spending about one fifth of 1% of our GDP. So, so that was pretty outlandish, wasn't it? Well, Roosevelt won four elections in a row. He took America through the Great Depression and into the Second World War and through that to victory. So um, obviously Boris Johnson has not done anything comparable yet. On the other hand, when Roosevelt came in and there was a really, there was a huge banking crisis at that point, people thought they were going to lose their life savings. Millions and millions of Americans had already lost their jobs. He said that he would experiment, he would try stuff out and he said they wouldn't get everything right. And Boris was saying exactly the same. I agree it's not on the same scale as Roosevelt, but it has a Rooseveltian optimism about it and a kind of pragmatism and not worrying. We're going to try lots of schemes and some of them will work. Um, So I think it's not a totally absurd comparison. And and Roosevelt really annoyed. He he was himself from a very privileged background. He, He really was regarded as a class traitor, but he enjoyed taking on 
big business. Boris hasn't done that, actually. In some ways, there's a lot of things that Boris has done in the recent months to combat the virus and indeed in this speech in spending even more money, which is which might be seen as taking on or alienating his conservative supporters. He did address this, didn't he, saying... Uh, he sort of, um, it, but he said, "I'm not going to apologise for government intervention. It's the right thing to do." But d- don't you think there'll be some some conservatives who are deeply worried about the scale of intervention that he's that he's ordering? I think most conservatives, in any sense, realise that the coalition which he formed to win the election has got to be kept in being. He's got to do stuff. He's got to deliver for Labour, uh, for former Labour voters. Um, it's true that there are some. Uh, to my way, way of thinking, very narrow-minded conservatives who think that conservatism is just some sort of economic doctrine, and if the state gets out of everything, then everything will be all right. Um, and, and, and I think they will be disappointed, but I think, they're, I think they're a pretty small minority of people who don't really understand that conservatism is a much richer tradition than just sort of Manchester liberalism, the state having a minimal state. It's quite novel that he actually felt the need, albeit partly in jest, to say, I'm not a communist. I mean, uh, it's quite an extraordinary thing for a conservative leader to say, what was that all about? The great cause of cheering us all up. But it is also that, of course, he will be accused of of having too much faith in state action. Boris is is a have-your-cake-and-eat-it man. He also wants to boost private enterprise, and private enterprise is going to produce the tax revenues to pay for all this stuff. And not, he didn't do this yesterday, but he could, you could point to South Korea, which is incredibly, has become incredibly rich. And it is a mixture of absolutely ruthless competition between providers when they want to put in broadband or something, um, mm. the latest digital stuff. It, it's a com- combination of that and, and, and state, let state, the state deciding what South Korea is going to be really good at. And there's obviously going to be a much bigger element of that in the Johnson government. I mean, you've been watching Boris Johnson closely for, for many years, Andrew. H- how, how did you think he looked? How do you think his health is? Because I mean, at the weekend, he was boasting that he was as fit as a butcher's dog and he even got on the floor to do some press-ups. How did he seem to you? He seemed a lot better than he was. I mean, both before he went into hospital and when he came out, he looked pretty shattered, didn't he? As far as one can see, he is on the mend. He, he was described once by Charles Moore as a lazy workaholic. He has always been incredibly energetic. While most of us might still be in bed, he'd already have, already have gone for a run, written a speech, sort of done several other things before breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seems to me that he is returning to that, to that kind of astonishingly energetic attitude to things, doing lots and lots of, having lots and lots of different things on the go at the same time. He's, he's, he's keen to be compared to Roosevelt, but he, he clearly he doesn't want to be compared to David Cameron at all because he made that rather, ra- rather cheap dig, I thought, because um, he, he won't utter the word um, austerity. And he said, we won't be cheese pairing our way out of trouble. I thought that was a bit cheeky since it was the cheese pairing of the David Cameron government that provided, provided the amount of money to get us, out of, um, to get us through the pandemic. What, what's, what's his problem with David Cameron, Andrew? I think, frankly, he considers himself to be a lot brighter than David Cameron. Uh, and Cameron was always the, the, a, a minor figure, both at, when they were both at Eton. He was a famous performer at Oxford who became president of the Debating Society at the second attempt. I mean, Cameron was known within his own college, but not known any more widely <laughs> than that. Uh, and then Cameron went, vanished into the, into the Conservative Party machinery, whereas Boris became a famous correspondent 
first in Brussels teasing the European Union and then on programmes like Have I Got News For You? So Boris thinks that the sort of natural order of things has been restored with him as the famous person. But also he doesn't want people to think these Tories have been in power since 2010. Ten years, we're getting bored of them. He wants there to be a feeling of that this is a new beginning um, and that he is that essentially we've had a change of government without actually having had a change of party. So it's very much in his interest to, to, to think that, that life really got serious and we got a wonderful prime minister last July um, and to forget about the very long period when Cameron basically forced Boris to go off and be mayor of London because he wouldn't give Boris a serious job at Westminster. Well, nobody's ever accused Boris Johnson of being boring, Andrew. And thank you very much for coming on. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Well, Simon, uh, I'm, I'm a bit offended by Andrew Jimson's comments, as I'm one of those narrow-minded conservatives that he seems to want to give short shrift to. I feel left behind. I feel neglected. I feel unloved by a prime minister who's turning into, well, I think he is turning into a bit of a, you know, a commie. Conservative commentator Tim Montgomery founded the very successful Conservative Home website. Tim until recently worked for Boris Johnson and was the founder of the Conservative Home website. Tim, what did you make of Boris Johnson's speech yesterday? I mean, a lot of Conservatives were quite cheered by it. It was Boris being his, his bit more vim and vigour and trying to relaunch his government. Um, what did you think? I was a bit underwhelmed, to be honest, Simon. Um, we are facing perhaps the biggest economic crisis Britain has faced since the Second World War. And at the heart of what he said was a £5 billion offering. Now, £5 billion is not an insignificant sum of money, but it amounts to just 0.2% of the economy. And just in the last few days, we've had big firms making huge numbers of redundancy. And yes, it was positive, Boris. It was that sort of can-do Churchillian Boris that we all love. But the actual amount of money, the scale of policy promise, just wasn't up to the job, I'm afraid. But, but don't you think there's a lot of Conservatives out there who are already seriously concerned about the amount of money that, that the government spent on combating the virus? And, and the idea that we, that we can now spend billions more on a recovery plan is the kind of approach you'd expect from a Labour government, not a Conservative government. And that's a very fair criticism. So what would you expect a Conservative government to do then differently, but off scale? Um, something massive on the deregulation front, something that would give um, companies much cheaper energy, for example. You know, one of the advantages we do have, there aren't many advantages at the moment um, in the world economy, but it's incredibly cheap oil prices. But what could the government have offered in terms of a tax holiday for sectors that were and most stress, particularly the hospitality sector. And you know, I think the markets are also waiting for some tough measures. Perhaps we'll get them from uh, the Chancellor next week. But there are certain sectors, the gambling sector, insurance sector, to some extent the supermarket sector, have done okay during this, um, this crisis. You know, windfall tax on some of those um, sectors, just to show that um, the government is willing to give out medicine as well as sweets because that's what you do if you're a fiscal conservative. It was just an inadequate speech and not especially conservative and not especially Rooseveltian either. You know, he just talked about Roosevelt being his new hero, but the scale of what Roosevelt did in the 1930s compared to what he announced, this was this mouse versus mountain. Tim, on, on a slightly wider level, what you, you worked for Boris uh, and, until quite recently. 
Why is it that you've parted company with him politically as a, as a lifelong conservative? I wouldn't say I parted company politically with him, Simon. You know, I still believe in Brexit. I still believe in his kind of one nation conservatism. Um, but I found Downing Street um, and the you know what I saw from outside as well as inside just quite a suffocating place. There are only a few voices that are really listened to. And I think you know who the voice is that the Prime Minister listens most to. And when you have a Downing Street that briefs against its former Chancellor, Sajid Javid, briefs against Cabinet Ministers, briefs against the Cabinet Secretary, as we've learned um, this week, it's an operation that I think is is difficult to trust. It's um, the sort of things that were true of Margaret Thatcher's government after six or seven years. It stopped listening. This seems to be a government that stopped listening after six months. And um, the election victory has gone to its head. And it's not the Boris Johnson I knew when he was at City Hall. Amanda. Yeah, Tim, can I just ask, the, what's the relationship between Boris and, and Dominic Cummings really like? I mean, when they're in a room together, does the Prime Minister defer to him? Is he as arrogant and as obnoxious as he appears to be? I'm not talking about Boris, I'm talking about Cummings. I mean, how yeah. does it go? How does, how does it function? I've been in very few meetings with just the, um, you know, just a few people that I don't know, I was involved in larger meetings. Wh what I have seen, Amanda, in, in those larger gatherings is, is just the words, Don won't wear that or Don won't put up with this. It's, it's enough to kill off conversations. And, you know, contrasting again with the, you know, the Thatcher years, Mrs. Thatcher relished internal debate. She needed yeah. to be tested internal debate because she knew if she wasn't tested in those internal debates, policies would fall apart when they met, you know, reality um, with the opposition or with the press. Is it actually Boris who says Don won't wear that? No, it's just a general collective. Yeah. Yeah. If it was only Boris, then look, Boris I've never heard say that. It's more individuals in the Downing Street Cabinet Office yeah. operation. and. They didn't really have a team when Boris was running for the leadership. They didn't have like an American-style transition team. They, didn't re they weren't really planned or ready to go into government. And so I think what happened was the vote-leave operation that Don Cummings and Matthew Elliott ran in, during the Brexit campaign yeah. was transplanted into government, into Downing Street. It's meant that Don Cummings' team is as much as Don Cummings' team as the Prime Minister's team. So overall, Tim, would, would, would you say you are quite downbeat about the prospects of this Conservative government? I'm downbeat so long as the best talents are excluded from the Cabinet and excluded from Downing Street. I think we have a absolutely massive crisis on our hands and what we don't have is the best people and the best brains at the heart of government, ready to face up to this challenge. Tim Montgomery, thanks very much. I think what Tim said about the atmosphere in Downing Street is interesting. Because, of course, remember, Tim Montgomery worked for Boris until very recently. Yeah. That phrase he came out with said, it's suffocating in Downing Street because whenever you come up with an idea, frequently people say, oh, you can't pursue that. Why? Oh, Dom won't wear it. I, I must say, I, I thought Don would wear virtually anything, any scruffy T-shirt or dirty sweatpants. <laughs> but but that, that, that aside, I, I think there is a feeling among, among some people that this influence of Dominic Cummings is very, very strong in Downing Street. I mean, it looks pretty obvious. That's the reason the Cabinet Secretary went. And I suppose the wider point Tim Montgomery was making, if you want to have a successful government, you've got to have this sort of 
open, fresh, lively thinking inside yeah. Downing Street. And can it all be put on the on the shoulders of one person? Um, Dominic Cummings, I'm not sure. And let's not forget that Boris started to hemorrhage in the polls. They've now got him and Keir virtually neck and neck, Keir Starmer. And they started to hemorrhage when they did the first poll after um, Cummings broke all the lockdown rules. And the reason given for their, their disgust with the government was the fact that this man at the heart of, of, of the government had been allowed to play by a different set of rules. And, and since then, we've seen things not looking great. I mean, we're way off an election, but Cummings has done a lot of damage to Boris. Before I get to my topical tune, we have what I affectionately call Amanda's Weekly Warble. Amanda, <gasps> over to you. That is so awful. The reason for my tune this week is that there are a lot of people out there who are hurting a lot of people who think Boris is a big fat fibber. And so I've chosen Tim Harden's 1966 song, Reason to Believe. Here it goes. If I listen long enough to you, I'd find a way to believe that it's all true. Knowing, I can see you laughing, Simon. <laughs> I'm going back to that bit. Knowing that you lied straight face while I cried. Still, I'd look to find a reason to believe. Absolutely, utterly, utterly. Well, it's just utterly. <laughs> oh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't got anything to follow that. Only Bob Dylan's. <laughs> My topical tune is Bob Dylan's A Hard Rain Is Gonna Fall. And the reason I've chosen that is because that was the phrase used by Dominic Cummings a week or so ago to kind of foreshadow his Whitehall shake-up. And it turned out that the person on whom the hard rain was going to fall was the Cabinet Secretary, uh, Sir Mark Sedwell. I mean, Dylan's song, actually Dylan's back in the charts now. He's got the number one album in the charts. This song was written back in the 1960s. And I think Cummings and Dylan have got quite a lot in common, quite dark, mystical, vaguely sinister. But it's one of the great early Bob Dylan songs. I know my song well before I start singing. It's a hard, it's a hard. It's a hard, and it's a hard, it's a hard rains are gonna fall. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget, you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other Mail Plus radio podcasts at mailplus.co.uk or via Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And join us again next week for more political chat. But for now, that's all from me, Simon Walters. And from me, Amanda Platel. One, two, three. Goodbye. Goodbye. You always get that bit out of tune. Timing. It's all about the timing, Simon. What's that beeping? My fridge. <laughs> I think your fridge is more musical than our song. <laughs> so you're going to say the fridge is more musical than my singing? <laughs> well, I assume there's an alarm. The alarm goes off every twenty minutes, telling you, to, telling you to have another glass of Chardonnay. No, I think that was just telling me to stop singing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.